Welcome to Rancho Baptist Church. This message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning services. Merry Christmas 2018 as Pastor Jason finishes up his Christmas series in Luke. Today's in Luke chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 20 in his sermon entitled, The God Who Saves. Let's join Jason now in his sermon. Well, Merry Christmas. I am Pastor Jason, and welcome again to Rancho Baptist Church. I'm the senior pastor here, and I, I get the privilege and the awesome responsibility of taking us to, to Luke chapter 2 this morning and remembering the birth of the Savior of the world. In fact, there's probably not another place in Scripture that I get more excited about coming to and preaching because this could basically preach itself. This is unadulterated truth. And it's all in magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2. As we will see the God who saves. Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 20. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for how it makes known to us how salvation came. We pray now that You would open up Your Word to us, that You would set me aside and that You would speak through Your mighty Word, Lord. Lord, 
that you would cut deep into our souls and that you would allow us to leave here more appreciative of what this time represents and amazed at how you became man, sinless man. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So as I've been thinking about this day and the Christmas season that, that is upon us, I, I've become more and more aware over the years that honestly, Christmas has been hijacked. Right? That over the years, Christmas becomes more and more changed and transformed to such an extent that I remember coming home from the mission field not too long ago where you could no longer say Merry Christmas. Right? If you went into Walmart or you wanted this, no, no, you couldn't say Merry, you had to say Happy Holidays. And, and basically what has been going on is, is Christ has been taken out of Christmas. And what I want us to be reminded of this morning is that Christ is central to Christmas, that Christ is all about Christmas, that Christmas is all about Christ and about salvation coming. And that many assume that the angel that appears to the shepherds first is the angel Gabriel, and yet it doesn't tell us what his name is. And, And I believe the reason is because God wants us to know that this is all about Jesus. That this isn't about the angels, it's not about the shepherds, that this is all about Jesus, that the God who saves has come. And what we're going to see this morning is first we're going to see salvation is born. And that's going to be in verses 1 to 7. Then we're going to see salvation is announced. And that's in verses 8 to 14. And then finally we're going to see salvation is seen. Like no other time in human history, salvation can be seen and as and is seen. And we'll see that in verses 15 to 20. So first, let's look at at the beginning. And the picture that, that Luke paints in order for us to understand just how salvation is born. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Luke starts off explaining to us a little bit of the background and the setting, saying, in those days, and and, in what days were these? He's, He's talking about a real historical setting. He wants us to know that this happened in a particular time at a particular place that unlike so many of the Disney movies that start off with what? Once upon a time, and we don't know if it's fairy tale or or what, this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't something concocted by man. This isn't some far-fetched story. This is reality. And so he pins this as happening within a real live historical context. That Jesus Christ was a real man. That his parents were real. And this isn't some story concocted in Hollywood. That this is reality. And he starts off with saying what? That a decree went out. An official public ordinance that causes Joseph and Mary to be uprooted from where they were living and travel as we're going to see all the way to Bethlehem. And who is the person that puts all this into action? Well, it's God, but He uses this this man 
that Luke talks about. Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus is a very well-known man in history. No doubt you've heard of him. But his name really isn't Caesar Augustus, even though he's, he's one of the greatest Roman emperors. And he's the first Roman emperor. His name is, is really Octavian. And the history behind Octavian is rich and deep. Why? Because he was related to Julius Caesar. In fact, his mom was Julius Caesar's sister. And as such, he, he grew up in the palace. He grew up with Julius Caesar. In fact, Julius Caesar liked him so much so that he doted on him, that he loved on him, and got to the point to where when he was 20 years old, Octavian was adopted by Julius Caesar. Which meant that he then became the rightful heir to the throne. And he didn't know this was going to happen as fast as it did, but, but then Julius Caesar is, is, is murdered. And then there's a, a fight for the throne. And he teams up with a man named Mark Anthony. And together they defeat Brutus and, and, and Cassius at Philippi in, in, in 42. But, but Mark Anthony actually ends up being married to his sister, to Octavian's sister. And you would think that that would be a good thing, especially since they teamed up and, and, and they defeated and Brutus and it looks like he's going to then take the throne. But that isn't what happens. Actually, Mark Anthony then divorces his own, his sister, meaning Octavian's sister. And he gets pulled into this relationship with a very prominent, famous woman named Cleopatra. And the, and the two of them decide, oh man, we're going to take over Rome. And so they decide that they're going to engage Octavian and the Roman fleet. And if you know your history, you know what happens. They lose. And they end up committing suicide with one another. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. And, and through that whole situation, Octavian becomes the next Caesar. But they don't just call him Caesar or Octavian Caesar, Caesar Octavian. They call him Caesar Augustus. And there's significance behind this title Augustus because it means majestic or holy one. And they deem him that around 27. And it's the Roman Senate that deems him that. And when they do that, they begin worshiping him as God. And if we could get some of the ancient documents that are in the British Museum, we, we'd see that some of these documents, it, it identifies that the Roman people not only saw this man, Caesar Augustus, as God, but they saw him as, as the Son of God and they saw him as the Savior. The Savior of the common people. In fact, that's what he wanted to be called. He wanted to be called the Savior of the common people. And as you dig in deeper and you read more, you find that the common people that they associated with him, these three qualities, peace, hope, and good news. And those are exactly the same things that we're going to see are ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because, because Satan is a man who, he's the mastermind behind everything. As being one who wants to do what? He wants to undermine the work of God. He wants to take God's rightful position. 
And so as such, he, he concocts all these false Christs and, and false gods in the world. And, and then he leads people to worship them. But God, even in this, uses this false god to bring about his plan of salvation through the census, which really is just a word meaning to enroll or to register. So what it meant was that everybody was supposed to register, and generally they're supposed to register for the army, but the Jewish nation was was not allowed to register in the army, so what it was talking about was taxation. That they, they wanted everyone within the empire to go to their own city where they were from, and the Jews in particular to go there to be registered in order for them to pay taxes. But isn't it interesting that with all the things that, that, that we know about the history of Caesar Augustus, that God doesn't choose to bring Himself into human history by sending a Caesar Augustus, but by Himself becoming a little baby. Born in a manger. And he sends this proclamation, this news, not to the politically connected or the well-established or even the most powerful, but he sends this news first to shepherds. And he uses two meek and mild people to bring about this plan, Mary and Joseph. Look at verses 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. We're not talking about a small little trip to go all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. At least 70 miles. And that would take normally at least three days, but because Mary is pregnant, it's going to take closer to five days. And many people, as as I read different commentaries and looked into this, lots of people go into, well, why did Mary go along with Joseph? It just doesn't make any sense. And some would say, oh, well, well, it's because she owned land in that area and that she was from the line of, of David as well. And, and Luke 3.31 tells us that. Others say, oh no, she, she needed protection from Joseph, and so that's why she went along. Others say, oh no, they're already married. I believe the reason why she went along is because that was part of God's plan. Because that was how God was going to fulfill what Micah 5.2 says. So many years before this, The prophet Micah wrote this, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So there was no way that Mary would stay in Nazareth. She had to move from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that is where God had planned that His Messiah, the Messiah, the Savior would be born. And that is exactly what we see happens. In verses 6 and 7, again with hardly any fanfare, It gives us that historical background. says that this is what moved them there. And then 6 says this, While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
you notice how it says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. It's not talking about that, that she came right up to her nine-month pregnancy time and boom, like every other woman who has ever carried a child, it was her time to carry. It's much deeper than that. This was part of God's providential plan that He knew that she would deliver not only here at this point, but at what time that it would happen in night. And that this was all part of God's predetermined plan. Just think with me for a moment of the fact that wouldn't Mary have known that since she was pregnant, she was going to have a baby? And since she was going to have a baby, wouldn't she want to stay someplace reasonably comfortable? And she knew, okay, I'm going to Bethlehem. I'm going to have the baby there. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to find a place to stay. And yet, in the way that this is depicted, she's totally caught unaware. Why? Because this is God's timing. He is orchestrating everything to work out this way. Why? So that salvation would come exactly the way that He had said hundreds and hundreds of years before this happened, the way that salvation would come. And then it says she gave birth to her firstborn son. Why the delineation of the firstborn son? We know, as you read chapter 1 of Luke, you know this is her firstborn. Well, the reason is because People like to twist things at times. And, and some have said, oh, you know what? Mary is actually a perpetual virgin. She stays a virgin for forever. No, this lends itself to the fact that there was more children after this. And that is the case. As you look at Mark 6.3, it says this. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. For as wonderful as Mary was, she was not a perpetual virgin. It was something that God allowed for the particular purpose of bringing the Messiah, His Savior, into the world without sin. And so then, what does it say that she does? She wraps Him in clothes, in cloths. That means to wrap tightly, to secure, to swaddle, in such a way that a baby wouldn't be able to move. This was the normal ancient Jewish custom. So this is totally normal. This is what you do with a baby. In fact, if, if we were to go to Syria and Palestine, you'd probably see this still happening today. But the other things that are mentioned in, in this text, not at all. When, when it says that, that he's laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, that is not normal. That is indeed a feed trough for animals, for the cattle, for the sheep, for the goats, not for a baby. And it's not normal for, for someone to have a baby where she had this baby. In the stable. In what is called the, because there was no room for them in the inn. This word inn is, is very interesting. It, it's, it's translated from five different Hebrew words in the Old Testament. And each of these Hebrew words has a little different nuance of meaning. And so, so when this word, when it says in the inn, it could mean any one of these. It could mean a guest house. It could mean an inn. It could mean a lodging place. It could mean a place to lie down and rest. And in the Greek in particular, it has this idea of to loosen, to unharness, to take lodging for the night. It has the idea of rest. And, and, and some ancient traditions actually say that it was a cave used as a stable. And because of that, the shepherds would know exactly where this happened and where this was. 
when they hear news of it. But isn't it amazing that that's not the end of the story? It could be, right? The salvation has come, but, but that's not enough. And, and what we see next is salvation is announced because that is the gracious, loving God that we have. That He's given us His Word so that we would know all of this. So that we would know without a shadow of a doubt how the world began. And, and that's why He gave us Genesis. He gives us the Gospel so that we know how He became a man and exactly the way that it happened with the virgin birth that, that we saw last week, this week, with the birth of Jesus Christ. Salvation is announced. Look at verse 8. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over in their flock by night. So first, it gives us an introduction to the shepherds. And it says first where they were located in the same region. This means that they were close in proximity to Bethlehem. And it was their custom of shepherds that when it came to be the winter months, which would be from November to March, that as they looked after their sheep, they would stay close to a city in case bad weather came in so that they would be close to get provisions and some support. Now, just bringing up shepherds in in the Israelite community and and, and in the history of the nation is, is quite peculiar. Because as you look at shepherds, even though I would say these guys are characterized here, these shepherds as being ones that that, that responded and were somewhat devout to the Gospel. That they were waiting for the Messiah. For the most part, shepherds are not looked at as being very religious and pious or keeping the law. Why not? Well, because they're out with the sheep all the time. And because of that, it's hard for them to observe all the ceremonial laws. And so they were kind of looked down on. In fact, to such an extent that they were even excluded from being able to give a testimony in the Jewish court system. And yet, of all of the people to choose to make the first proclamation of the Savior's birth to, who does God choose? He chooses the shepherds. And He gives us two characteristics of the shepherds. One, that they lived outside in the fields. The second, that they, take, they took turns at, in night watches. It was their custom that within the day, that the sheep would just graze on grass and roam all around. But then when night came, they'd gather all the sheep together and they'd bring them in and, and then they'd construct these crude shelters or, or pens or sheepfolds. And those were, were constructed in order to protect the sheep from the weather, from wild beasts, or, or even from thieves. And so the shepherds would stay close by. And then they would swap out. They would trade shifts of watching the sheep. And some of the shepherds, they'd have to stay close in order to keep an eye on them to make sure nothing happened to them. And the other shepherds would would sleep for a couple hours and then they'd they'd swap. It's interesting that in God's Word, there's quite a lot of mentioning of shepherds. In fact, God equates Himself to a shepherd in Ezekiel 34. He's likened to a good shepherd. And we know that later, Christ Himself refers to Himself as the good shepherd in John 11, John 10, 11. And He says that a good shepherd will lay down His life for the sheep. And according to Micah 5, 
It says, A ruler over Israel will arise in Bethlehem and shepherd his flock. So it's no wonder that that the angel comes to the shepherds first. Look, Look at verse 9. Because of the rich history, because of the picture, because of what Jesus is going to say, because of what God had already said in in the Old Testament. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Again, an angel of the Lord, that's the same phrase used back in Luke one eleven, talking about Gabriel. But we don't know if this is Gabriel. Why? Because the focus isn't on him. It's on the salvation that comes. And then what does it say? It says, suddenly, this angel stood before them. Think about what life was like for the shepherds. I happen to know a little bit of what it's like from living in Papua New Guinea where they didn't have street lights. And there's not too many flashlights around. And so you know what it is? It's pitch black. And it's very quiet except for the sound of animals or crickets or what have you. So no doubt the shepherds were having this very quiet, dark night with no noise except for them listening to something that might be coming that they could then protect their sheep with. And then suddenly, interrupting the no noise in this perfect tranquility, boom, is this angel. And this angel comes in all of his splendor. And just the angel enough is enough to scare anybody. If it's just the angel coming, as we already saw, Last week and the week before, with Zacharias, he was first scared. And then Mary, when, when she sees the angels, she's scared. But this is even more. Why? Because the glory of the Lord shone around them. This glory means the splendor, the brightness of the Lord. It's the same word that Luke uses in, in Acts to describe Saul's conversion to the Apostle Paul as the blinding light comes. It's, it's, it's that kind of brightness, that glory comes. And this is so much different than what the angel Gabriel had come to before when he came to Zechariah, when he came to Mary. Because the glory of the Lord came with him this time, whoever this angel was. It's not talking about the glory of the angel. This is the glory of the Lord. And that makes this totally different and that much more of a scary proposition to think of coming not only to the presence of an angel, a holy angel, but now the glory of the Lord as well. And no doubt with that presence, with that power and that flashing coming, what does he do? He he gets terribly frightened. But we know that the purpose of the angel's visit is not to terribly frighten him, but actually to bring great joy. Look at verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Literally what what the angel says is, it's not just do not be afraid, it's stop being frightened right now. Why? Because I haven't come here to frighten you. I've come here to give you good news. I have come really to evangelize you. To give you the good news. You know what? The Savior has come. That the Christ has come. The one who is to bring salvation. Not only to you, but to the whole earth. To all people. And this good news, this 
What does it bring? It brings great joy. And what greater joy could there be than the realization and the complete acceptance of the incredible fact that God Himself, through the sacrifice of His own Son, had brought about the solution to the world's greatest problem, that of sin. Right? What greater joy could there be? And was this not the first step of the solution to solving man's problem? Was this not the first step of Jesus as the Messiah and His walk towards the cross where He, as the perfect, holy, righteous God and substitute, being 100% God, 100% man, would die for the sins of those who would trust in Him? Yes, is this not something that would bring great joy? Is this not the good news, the Gospel, that salvation is available by grace through faith? as so many of the other scriptures in God's holy word attest to. We see in in verse 11 that again again it speaks of the city of David. The first time that we saw it, it was tied in with Bethlehem. But but the reality is, is, is when we see the city of David in scripture, and if we were to look at the Old Testament's usage of it, it occurs 28 times, every time it specifically is referring to Jerusalem. And it's referring to it in a certain context, saying it's the final resting place of the kings of Judah. That all the kings of Judah were buried here. And so the burial place of Israel's monarchs is now declared the birthplace of Israel's Messiah. That Only God could accomplish that and bring all this to fruition and allow this to happen And this Messiah, what is He called? He's called the Savior. The One who rescues, the One who saves, the One who delivers. Not a Savior who would save them from Roman tyranny or even physical hardships. But a Savior that would save them and you from sin and death. No doubt that this has got to be a bit of a knock towards Caesar Augustus. Why? Because He's calling Himself the Savior of the common people. And now this is saying that this is the Savior. And if you take into account the fact that this is part of the, the, the Pax Romana time, time of, of Roman peace, that, that even adds even more to it. And then he says what? He says that he's not just the Savior, he's Christ the Lord. It, it doesn't say... Christ of the Lord. As if He's sent of the Lord as some sort of representative. But it says that He is Christ the Lord. It's meant to convey that Jesus is not simply the Messiah of the Lord, but He is the Messiah who is the Lord. The Messiah who is God. That's what makes Him different from anyone else. There is no one else that could come and offer a perfect sacrifice of His life than God. Which is what makes this so amazing. Truly, the Savior is not Augustus in Rome, but a baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem. But the angel doesn't merely tell them who this baby is, but he also tells them where he is. Look at verse 12. As he gives them a sign. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's all he says. If your Bible's like mine, it, it says that 
there will be a sign for you. In the, in the Greek, there is an article there. And so you, you could rightfully and I think more accurately translate this as there will be the sign. This will be the sign for you. Why? Because although there were many babies born in Bethlehem during this night, no doubt, there was only one baby that, that was born, wrapped in claws, and then laid in a manger. And that baby is the Savior of the world, the Christ. Isn't it remarkable how, how God came and made His entrance in such a common way? No fanfare. Humbled to, to this extent. That a, that a baby was born to common people in a common place. You would almost think if you were just looking at it from the outside perspective, that there's nothing special about this at all. At all. In fact, this is, this is kind of poor and, 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 and too rustic and too primitive. And, and yet the reality is, look at what 13 and 14 says. God doesn't want us to miss how extraordinary this night is. How magnificent this night is. The magnitude of this night. So what does He do? He sends angels. Not just the one angel now, but now more. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Again, when does this happen? Suddenly, instantly. wasn't like they were thinking about this happening. But isn't this God's grace too? Think about if things had swapped. And instead of sending one angel first and then a whole bunch of angels after that, he had sent all the angels at first and then had one of them step out and, and give the proclamation. You want to talk about terrified shepherds, right? And, and then as you, as you dig into this more, you find that this word for the heavenly host, that word host literally means an army. It's a, it's a denoted military unit. This, this wasn't just any group of angels. This wasn't guys with harps, okay? This was a military unit. This was an army of angels. And normally when an army comes, what does it signify? It signifies waging war. But that isn't what they've come to do. What are they waiting? They are announcing peace. They are proclaiming peace and joy. And isn't our God awesome? That He would do such a thing. And what do they do? It says that they praise God saying, glory to God in the highest and, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. That, that word saying, praising God and saying, that could be translated as singing. So it could rightfully have been the case that they did break out into songs and they were worshiping the Christ child, worshiping God, praising Him through songs. A celebration. I, I don't know. What I do know is this. Think about this who these angels were and where they came from. They were created by God, by the Son of God. They were serving the Son of God. They were worshiping the Son of God. They were in His presence. All the way from the time they were created to this point. They had also seen what? The rebellion of Satan and all of His angels. They had also seen the fall of man and sin entered the world. They had also heard, no doubt, of the coming Messiah, trying to figure out what that looked like. No doubt, there's no way they would have come up with this as their game plan. Because now what they are looking at, as angels, they are looking at now this God, 
that defies any of our expectations, that defies anything that I can actually communicate as to how holy, righteous, glorious, and majestic this God is, they are now looking at Him as a baby. Do you think that there is anybody who has ever lived on the face of the earth that fully grasps that more than these angels? I don't. Because no one else was always in the presence of God and then now saw this. Doesn't matter if we're talking about David, Abraham, Moses, these shepherds, the, the ones that fully grasped the significance of what was happening were these angels. They understood how God becoming man was indeed the most indescribable act of love and grace that the world had ever seen. And so, yes, they come and they worship. As an outpouring of adoration, they come and they worship. And that's what we should do as well during this time. This should be a time not of just rejoicing over the presence that you get, but rejoicing over how God became man. And because of that, he is able to be seen. Unlike any other time in the history of man, salvation is seen. And we see that in the, in the final verses, 15 to 20. But look at 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Okay, in, in the Greek, I, I'm going to try to explain this. In the Greek, this verse puts the angels at the end of the first clause and, and puts the shepherds at the beginning of the second clause. In our translations, they're separated by lots of words. L let me try to, to give you a literal interpretation of what this actually said. It says something like this. It happened that when they, the angels, had gone to heaven, that is the angels, the shepherds then said to one another, that the, it says that is the angels, that, then the shepherds. Why is Luke putting the angels and the shepherds right next to each other? Because he's trying to emphasize the fact that this, for so long now, there had been this separation from heaven and earth that is now bridged. That this great division that existed between the heavens and the earth is now breached and united in Jesus Christ. That the Son of God had come in human flesh. And no doubt this is what got the shepherds so excited. And the shepherds began saying to one another, that, that, that's not a good enough translation. And in the, in the Greek, it's more. It's they began saying and they couldn't stop talking about it. It was continually going and going and going on what they were talking about. And the tense also reveals that the shepherds didn't hesitate after the angels left, but responded right away. It was totally on their mind. And then when it says, let us go straight to Bethlehem, there's more to it in the Greek than just let's go straight. It has the idea that this was a long ways. That it wasn't close. It wasn't like, oh, it's just the next tree. They actually had to be committed to walk quite a ways. And that's what they did. And look at verses 16 and 17 even though it was a long ways. So they came in a hurry with a sense of urgency and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. No doubt they saw things exactly the way the angel had told them they would see. And so they come with a sense of urgency, but then 
What do they do? Once they see Him, and they know that this is indeed exactly the way that the angel said it would play out, they knew for sure that this was the Savior. So what did they do? They made known the statement. Have you ever considered that these shepherds become the first evangelists of the Christian era? That's what they are doing. They are evangelizing. Not only did they see, but then they spoke all that the angel had told them. And they reiterated back to all those that were listening. And and from this testimony comes three responses. Amazement, pondering, and praise. And, And we'll finish with this. Verses 18 to 20. And all who heard it, All who heard what? All who heard what the shepherds were saying, relaying what the angel had told them, wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Notice there it says all. That lets us know it's not just talking about, well, we know it's not talking about Mary because it separates her in verse 19. It can't just be Joseph. There's more people there. I don't know who. I I can tell you, I don't believe it's the three wise men. Because we know from Matthew 2.11 that they actually come to Jesus when He's in a house. So it, it happened later with the wise men. Who was there? I don't know, but others were there. And when they heard this, they wondered. They were in a state of amazement. And wouldn't you be in the state of amazement? For sure. Why? Because of all the things that had happened. First, the imperial decree, an angelic message, divine directions, all centering around the birth of this baby. Were they marveling at the baby because Jesus had some sort of light coming off of Him? No, they were marveling at the words of what the angel had communicated and now what the shepherds were saying. Are you kidding me? This is God's plan. This is the Messiah. This little baby. And then what does it say about Mary? But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary, on the other hand, she she preserved these things in her heart. She protected and defended them. And in the Greek it goes deeper and and, and it says it has the idea that she kept continually pondering these things. No doubt for many, many years. Going, wow, my son really is the Savior. Is the, the God that created everything and has now come to earth. And then look at verse 20. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. The shepherds' responses is to glorify and to praise God for what He had done. Notice how how they have changed. This glorifying God is not based only upon what they'd seen, but what they had heard. And they now understood what had been told to them. This group of shepherds who hear and speak, they marvel and they ponder. Now we see them what? They're glorifying and praising God as they return to to the useful work that the Lord has for them in the world. Isn't this what this text should lead us to do as well? As we enter into, just two days from now, the birth of our Lord and remembering Him, that, that we would stop and that we would glorify Him, that we would praise Him. Okay, so these are in your bulletin. Points to ponder. These are just things that that if you want to consider more about this message this week, you can can take these with you and and, and think about them throughout this week, particularly on, maybe even on Tuesday, as we celebrate Christmas. Consider the army 
of angels that came down from heaven to give glory and praise to God for the birth of Jesus. These angels understood better than anyone who this baby is in the manger. And as a result, they offered praise to God for His incarnation. How might you give glory to God this week for Him becoming a man? What does that look like for you? Does that look like stopping around the Christmas table and and, and breaking into song and praising Him? And I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you start a new tradition. Number two, consider the shepherds who were visited by the angels this week. These shepherds heard the message of salvation. They saw salvation with their own eyes and they told others of the salvation that had come. Have you heard and believed this message of salvation? You may think you just randomly came here this morning, but you did not. As God orchestrated all these things to bring about Jesus' birth, God orchestrates all these things to get you here this morning. And perhaps you've never truly understood what it means to trust in Christ as your Savior. Well, it's to believe in Him. To recognize that you are a sinner. And that without Jesus coming and taking your place on the cross, you would have to pay for that sin. And so what do you do? You trust in Him as the one who paid your sin. Who took your sin debt, so to speak. Have you trusted in Him? If you have, who does God want you to tell His salvation message to this week? Who is God going to bring your way? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we just acknowledge what a wonderful and great God that You are. That Your plan of redemption goes all the way to the beginning of time, before any creation happened, that You had this masterful plan of redeeming mankind from their sinfulness by taking on human form, by becoming man but being without sin and going to the cross and dying for those that would trust in You so that we would not have to pay the price of our sins forever in hell. Thank You for the goodness of Your grace and for this time of of year. Be with us as we leave here and help us to celebrate the birth of the Savior in the next coming days. In Jesus' precious name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.